All right, uh, we're going to get going uh, by doing that first by uh, watching a, a four and a half minute video clip about some folks that I talked about yesterday, which is uh, some of the, the folks in Central America that are having such a problem with drought and famine and why they might be migrating upwards uh, towards the U.S. Or, or to eventually towards Canada. And um, so we looked at some folks that were having sea level issues yesterday. And to begin, we'll start with some folks who are having land issues. Their story is different from others you've heard. Herman didn't join the caravan because of violence in his homeland. He left because of drought and climate change. Central America has been hit with an intense and unusual drought in recent years. Crops are failing, starvation is lurking. The UN says two million people in the region are at risk for hunger. We have seen uh, events of uh, children actually dying out of uh, hunger. So it is that extreme. These people are moving away basically because they have no option. The reasons people migrate are complex, but the World Bank says in coming decades, more than 17 million people in Latin America could be forcibly displaced because of climate change. This is already starting to happen in Honduras, and almost nowhere is the trend more pronounced than in Copan. Data from the U.S. Border Patrol, which CNN analyzed in collaboration with the University of Texas, shows an increase in migration to the U.S. during the recent drought. Climate models show it's only getting worse. Droughts are becoming more intense. The relatively small, dry corridor of Central America is expanding, and it may cover the entire region. Abelio says he fled to the U.S. three times with the help of the smuggler. Each time, he was deported back to Honduras. His wife, Nora, says their family would have starved if a relative hadn't sent them help from the States. She wants Abelio to try the dangerous journey again, but they don't have the money. Climate migrants who join the caravan have little chance of safe and lawful passage to the U.S. International law does not recognize the rights of so-called climate refugees. And President Trump has claimed that all refugee candidates have to wait in Mexico while their claims are reviewed. Gregoria says two of her sons, aged 19 and 26, are trapped in Tijuana. Federal authorities met them at the border with tear gas, and she says one of them had his passport stolen. Slashing carbon pollution could decrease the number of climate migrants by millions, the World Bank says. And irrigation projects could help ease the pain of future droughts. But this exodus already is taking a toll. Delmi's husband died on the road while trying to join the caravan across the border in Guatemala. 
Y él decía que se iba a ir porque para buscando la vida mejor, decía, para que los hijos no sufrieran, a no sufrir más. Pero no, no se pudo, no, no se cumplió lo que él deseaba. The circumstances of his death are unclear. The family buried him in the land he used to till. All right, so while we often think of climate change impacting other parts of the world, this is part of our own continent, right? This is part of North America. It's in that link between uh, North America and South America. And I think that's, that's something for us to, to consider is that a lot of our immigration uh, issues that we frame in our country is framed in such a way as if it's good versus bad or evil folks versus these non-evil folks. And, and many times, um, particularly in the last 50, 100 years, people are migrating south of us to north of us to find fresh water and to find places where people can grow food again. So we talked a little bit yesterday about how future generations of Christians and other uh, and secular folks might uh, weigh us or judge us for how we uh, respond to the challenge um, by the end of the century. And today I want to talk about maybe four uh, different virtues that Christians profess in their churches now that might help us as a starting point into uh, what can often seem like an overwhelming issue. I mean, what we just saw there uh, in Honduras is like, how does someone, you know, say living in San Diego or living here in LA sort of help with that? And I realize that that's overwhelming. And so I think it's, it's uh, important for us to start thinking about what is it in our Christian mission, in our Christian toolbox uh, that we can sort of uh, rely on to at least start down the road. Okay. So the four uh, virtues we'll talk about today are solidarity hospitality, justice, and courage. And I think it, this, this way of talking about these virtues is really important because, for, for one, Christian virtues do not stand alone. If you're courageous, um, you're also hospitable. If you're hospitable, you're also looking for justice for people. They overlap with each other. And, and if they overlap with each other, it makes us a whole person. We're trying to form our entire um, mind, body, and spirit into the likeness of Christ, not just some parts of our character or behavior, okay? And then they also are reinforcing of each other. We're trying to live a good life, and by living a good life, it means we have to do all things to live a good life, not just, uh, you know, secure this one little spot over here or secure this one little spot over there. We have to live uh, a good life all together. And then I think, too, this uh, when we're confronted with a vast problem like climate refugees, it never hurts to return to the central vision of the early church, which was to become Christ-minded so that you might be able to meet the needs of the day, right? I mean, this is what the Apostle Paul is doing in the early church, is Christians are saying, what do we do? <laughs> and his point was, well, Christ didn't tell us everything to do, so we have to learn how to live in the age of the Spirit, but uh, transformed our minds in order to do that. So I'm hoping that the articulation and then the subsequent practice of these virtues will aid in our pursuit to be Christ-like, um, even more so now than ever before. Okay, so first, solidarity. 
It is easy enough to say that we desire to stand in solidarity with the poor and dispossessed of our world. Every Christian desires to be known uh, for being on the side of those in need. I mean, who, who wants to say that they're not standing in solidarity uh, with those who are poor or in need? But what does that actually mean? What does it mean to stand in solidarity with someone? While this concept may be unfamiliar to many Protestants, it is commonly used by our Roman Catholic sisters and brothers and used to convey something that is deeply theological and meaningful to their faith. Pope John Paul II um, is perhaps the most helpful recent voice to define what this virtue means. And he reminds us that the root of the idea of solidarity is the notion of interdependence, meaning that all of humanity, not just those of certain families or those who live on certain continents, uh, all of us are linked together and moving towards a goal that God has for the entirety of creation. It is not only the recognition of the links that make up the human family, but the interdependency of all our economic, cultural, and political structures as well, right? We live in a world where we're completely a globalized village, and climate change is showing that more than anything, that what we do here definitely impacts something that we do elsewhere. John Paul also argues that when we recognize our interdependence, our appropriate response should be a moral one, and that is this idea of solidarity. So he says, quote, this then is not a feeling of vague compassion or shallow distress at the misfortunes of so many people, both near and far. On the contrary, it is a firm and persevering determination to commit oneself to the common good. That is to say, to the good of all and of each individual, because we are all really responsible for all. This is a huge piece of the Catholic faith, is that all of us have a role to play in helping everyone else. He goes on to say, Solidarity then helps us to see the other, whether that be a person, a people, or a nation, not just as a kind of instrument with a work capacity and physical strength to be exploited at low cost and then discarded when no longer useful, but rather as a neighbor or a helper, the word uh, from Genesis 2 story, to, made, to be made a sharer on par with ourselves in the banquet of life to which all are equally invited by God. In other words, we must recognize clearly that each of us is truly created in God's image and should be treated according to that affirmation. And then he concludes saying, one's neighbor must therefore be loved, even if an enemy, with the same love with which the Lord loves him or her. And for that person's sake, one must be ready for sacrifice, even the ultimate one, to lay down one's life for one's sisters or brothers. Ultimately, it seems to me, solidarity then is a Christian virtue that must be practiced faithfully by those who witness to the gospel of Jesus and how it applies directly to climate change refugees worldwide today. Standing in solidarity with others is not clicking a like button on Facebook, but at least learning to empathize with God's children who do not look like us, live like us, and yet are impacted by us daily. Whether in the video that we saw yesterday from Kiribati or uh, those in Honduras today. Okay. The second virtue, uh, hospitality. While every Christian must find a way to be in solidarity with climate refugees, not every Christian right now will necessarily be able to take the next step to hospitality due to one's proximity to those seeking refuge. Some that are far away from Kiribati, for example, are not going to be able to help them the same way that those who are living in Australia or New Zealand are, are their next door neighbors. And I think one of the distinctive marks of the earliest Christians was their practice of hospitality. 
Christian hospitality was radically different from the social norms of the day because while Romans were known for sharing meals with family members or friends or those they wanted to build favorable, often reciprocal relationships with, Christians were known for extending hospitality to those who were poor and who could not repay them. In particular, it was through those shared meals with strangers, with outcasts, with prostitutes, with slaves, that Christians redefine the possibilities of what hospitality might be about. In the New Testament Greek, the word often translated, or often used, that we translate as hospitality, is a word that literally means the love of strangers. That's if you were to translate it uh, most literally, that's what it would mean. As the Christian thinker Walter Brueggemann notes, biblically speaking, being a stranger particularly in the Old Testament, is a very troubling label. He says, quote, Strangers are those who do not have land, who are not judged as entitled to it, and who have no chance of acquiring any of it. Remember, this is the problem with Israelites, right, as they're traveling about, is they don't have any access to land. He goes on to say, It is not accidental, then, that strangers in our own society are often experienced as displaced people, right, people without a place. They have no place or have lost it because the social system with its capacity for inclusion and exclusion, or if we were to update this now, climate change and its uh, way of excluding and including people physically has in fact assigned their place to someone else and so denied them a safe place of their own. While Brueggemann was not thinking about climate refugees when he wrote about this, these words seem especially Uh, prescient to us now. Whether due to expanding deserts or rising sea levels, there will be at least hundreds of millions of people, as I mentioned yesterday, without a place very, very soon. And that's the conservative estimate. Similar to to solidarity, hospitality reinforces the Christian belief that every human is created in the image of God and should be dignified as such. During the table fellowship that the earliest Christians were renowned for, they practiced this belief without a Uh, concretely by treating all members of that meal equally. Strangers, those persons without a place, found a welcome place literally at a table of other Christians. Ultimately, another Christian thinker, Christine Pohl, argues that the Christian practice of hospitality is an act of worship rather than a duty or a tedious responsibility as we so often think about it in our society today. To be hospitable, she says, is to recognize God's grace and generosity, and in response to that, uh, outpouring a divine love to welcome others as humans created in the image of God, and especially those who are deemed strangers. Or as another Christian thinker, Letty Russell, puts it, quote, we need to remember that that hospitality is a relationship that is rooted in our God-given human nature. It is not a commodity to be rationed. And I think that's really important for us to think about, because I think sometimes we think being hospitable is a spiritual gift that some are good at and others are not, rather than a critical way to show Christ's love to all that we encounter. The parable of the Good Samaritan, of course, has radical implications for what it means to be hospitable. In that parable, Jesus redefines who our neighbor is and then how it is that we are to show that neighbor love, right? We want to see again that no ethnic, racial, socioeconomic, national, Religious boundaries overshadow that we are all made in God's image. Uh, Paul again reminds us that hospitality forces the sometimes abstract idea of loving, loving one's neighbor and the type of personal concrete action that makes an actual person feel recognized and welcomed. 
Quote, she says, claims of loving all humankind, of welcoming the other, have to actually be accompanied by the hard work of welcoming a human being into your real space. In other words, as I say to my students, it's easy to love people, but it's actually very difficult to love the person right in front of you. While the parable of the Good Samaritan has radical implications for what it means to be hospitable, perhaps a more challenging story is the one that we talked a little bit about yesterday uh, in 1 Kings, where uh, the unnamed widow of Zarephath is explained uh, to be this interesting hero of the story during the time of drought. As contemporary readers of this story, it might even seem reasonable for us to exhort the woman to use what she had solely for her family, right? Use the last of those resources for your own son and let the stranger go empty. As we often live in a place, I think, where we believe it's God's command to care for our own family before we are hospitable to strangers, but we seem to have made that up on our own and can't seem to point to where God actually says that. Instead, this woman stands as an unnamed model of virtue who's hospitable to the stranger, even in the most dire of circumstances. Even when there does not appear to be enough resources to share, the widow does not ignore God's command to be hospitable. And if climate change teaches us nothing else, it is going to separate the Christians who are hospitable with all that they have when climate refugees come into their midst from those who are not, to allude to another biblical story. The Christian thinker Letty Russell argues that in order for us to be hospitable, Christians must ask ourselves this really important question. What actually prevents us from being hospitable? What are the excuses or reasons in our life that prevent us from being more Christ-like? And she argues there's at least three categories to think about. The first are personal reasons, the second are social reasons, and the third are theological or religious reasons. And the personal limits, she says, um, are, are these things that we might have within ourselves that we might not want to extend. Might they be something like this? Um, we don't like the idea of actually sharing our home or other resources with other people because we enjoy our, quote, personal space way too much, right? Or, you know, maybe we're okay with sharing our home with people who look like us and live like us, but deep down inside, we would prefer not to share with people who look differently from us or live differently from us, Right? I'm sure there's others that we could think of um, if we wanted to out loud. The social reasons. Perhaps there's something like this. Do we find ourselves saying that the climate refugee problem is a governmental problem and thus not, not something for churches to concern themselves with? We do a very interesting job as American Protestants these days of saying what are church problems and what are not. Do we find ourselves saying that we should help people in our nation first and then help others with whatever resources remain as if the church is an agent of the government rather than an institution uh, required, not required, but uh, created by God. Do we even realize that climate change disproportionately impacts women more than men and seek to accommodate them appropriately? We talk about this with my students quite a lot, that just something as simple as literacy for women uh, can cause problems for women in other places when they can't read emergency signs or they can't uh, fill out asylum paperwork. And so how do we understand the disproportionate parts of this? Do we actually think there are social problems out there that might preclude us from being hospitable to others? And then third, theological problems. What are the limits that might prevent us from reaching out to the other? Do we really believe, like the early church, that God calls us to share all that we really have with others? I think what the, if we look at the research recently, 
American Christians give about 2% of their wealth to charity or church, um, which is down from 3% during the Great Depression. So here we have a sense of we have one of the most historically uh, large amounts of wealth in the history of, of the U.S., and yet Christians are giving far less of their resources even now. Do we really believe that all humans are equally children of God? Or do we secretly believe that some people deserve more help than others? The sort of, well, we'll help those who want to help themselves philosophy that so many Christians talk about secretly in church. Do we secretly believe that we are only supposed to help Christians in crisis, but not all humans? I hear that a lot recently. We have only so little money, so we'll help Christians rather than not. That's a very difficult issue, but are we even willing to say that out loud? Who, who are communities around us and who are we actually supposed to help? Do we think that when we say that God will surely fix this mess, as we talked about yesterday, that it really means that we don't have to work on God's behalf, that we're just going to sit passively and wait for God to sort of clean up our mess. And as we talked about with the Noah story yesterday, if the Noah story teaches us nothing else, it is that God does not clean up the messes that humans create in the way that we so uh, want or desire. Okay, And I, I would encourage you to think about that on your own later on. What are those things that make your church community or you personally not be hospitable, that those are probably harder to look at in the mirror than we would like to think. So let's go to the third virtue, uh, justice. There was a predominant notion of justice that the early church affirmed that I'm not sure we take seriously 20 centuries later. It is this, if God is the creator of heaven and earth, then God has made enough to go around, on, around if only we would share justly or fairly. This was a very common affirmation. And this early commitment of the church is either something that we don't believe or that we fail to practice regularly enough that it could be recognized by others as a concrete expression of our faith. Uh, next time you go home, ask if anyone in your community knows you as the church that shares with others. I mean, that's a really painful question to ask because we are often not known as the ones who share. One could certainly argue that we do not believe this as American Protestants are complicit in an economic system that has created the most wealth inequality in the history of our planet. In other words, we live in a current moment when the haves have dwindled precipitously as the have-nots have grown exponentially around the planet. And at the same time, the small amounts of haves have more of the resources of the planet than ever before in the history of human civilization. If we fail to practice this affirmation regularly, that is, that there is enough to go around if only we would decide to share it, then is it the case that we no longer understand sharing as an act of justice, but rather as an expression of love towards some, but not towards others? Loving the ones who deserve our love, but not loving those who need it. While there's nothing fundamentally incorrect about understanding sharing or charity as an expression of love, which at times can be interpreted, I think, as something we do occasionally out of the, quote, goodness of our hearts. I believe we would be wise to listen to the early church that argued charity, the act of giving and sharing, was actually an exercise of justice and thus morally obligatory, especially if you were a wealthy Christian. That was incredibly important to the early church experience. And I think we now live in a time when, relatively speaking, American Christians are some of the wealthiest people on the planet, and yet... We are some of the most stingy people on the planet. Speaking originally in the context of food, the second century theologian Clement of Alexandria said that a wealthy person who was gluttonous shamed herself doubly. Once because of her own intemperance 
and secondly, because she showed that she had no concern for the starving folks in her own community. In other words, there's a dual loss of dignity because of a lack of sharing. The starving person has lost her dignity because she does not get to participate in the abundant life that God desires for us all, while the gluttonous wealthy person loses her dignity because she fails to demonstrate care for those that are in her midst. I believe there is an analogous situation when we think about just sharing and climate refugees. When we act like the unnamed widow from Zarephath and share with strangers, we affirm the dignity of the stranger as well as the dignity of ourselves. However, when we do not share, we maintain a status quo that strips the dignity of one group of people by showing that we do not care for the stranger in our own midst. In other words, we become less Christ-like when we bury our heads in the sand while there is suffering in our midst, especially suffering that is caused by our very own lifestyles and consumption choices. Ultimately, I think the affirmation of this early church insight into justice or the, the, the reflection of it uh, or the lack of reflection of it will be critical in dealing with the wave of climate migration that is already occurring and is yet to come. And then lastly, there's another component to justice, which is accepting responsibility for one's actions in order to make recompense uh, for con the consequences of one's actions, right? It's this basic thing that parents teach their kids. There are, res there are uh, responsible consequences for your actions. This is the basis of the new term climate justice, which is a, a new legal uh, term, legal and economic term, sort of floating around the planet these days. Climate justice refers to the idea that those who bear the greatest consequences of the effects of climate change, like expanding deserts and rising oceans, are those who have contributed the least to climate change. For example, those in Kiribati that we saw yesterday, or those we talked about just a moment ago in Honduras, burn a minuscule amount of fossil fuel per capita compared to citizens of the US, and yet their ways of life will be likely irreparably harmed by the end of the century. This cruel and tragic irony that those who have done the least to create climate change are being harmed the most should convict us to creative action rather than a continual passive acceptance of a status quo that is violently harming so many. I wonder how many American secular folks are turned off by the idea of the God of Jesus of Nazareth uh, being real because they, just, they see just how little we actually care about the consequences of our own actions. I had this, this conversation with my students quite a lot, like why do people believe in God or not believe in God? And this is something that I think those that are older in the church don't recognize for what it is, which is when we see people consuming and acting as if God's decision-making and God's con the consequences of our own actions don't matter at all, it turns people off from who God is, just as in oppositely during the first century when people were brought in from the streets and given meals and included uh, as full people, they became Christian. We don't seem to understand how that dichotomy is so incredibly apparent to the outside of the church world these days. And finally, the virtue of courage. As the veil of violent right-wing populism and anti-immigrant fervor continues to descend over countries around the world today, including our own, it is more apparent than ever that Christians are needed to affirm that we are all indeed made in God's image and have dignity regardless of our passport or immigration status. 
Climate refugees all over the world need Christians who are courageous enough to do this emphatically, nobly, and consistently. Moreover, we must stand up to the principalities and powers who all too often boisterously insist that people who come from foreign lands are disruptive to entrenched values, uh, national or otherwise, antithetical to societal norms, or just plain don't make an effort to fit in with our culture. Unfortunately, someone said that to me after our, our class today, yesterday rather. While I do not have time to explore the overlap of these virtues, um, because these all four of these work together, it will undoubtedly take courage to stand in solidarity and firm in front of our churches and our communities that we are all members of a single human family, regardless of nationality or ethnic background. It will take courage to be hospitable to strangers in our midst. It always has and it will continue to do be that way. To invite strangers to sit literally at our table and share a meal is maybe one of the most courageous things that we as Christians can do in the U.S. today. Frankly, it will take courage to stand in front of the mirror and confront the limits to our hospitality sincerely as we live in a time when the principalities and powers either subtly suggest that hospitality is to be rationed only to those who look like us or they blatantly encourage us to shut our doors on anyone deemed unsafe, whatever that might mean. It will take courage to exhort our Christian sisters and brothers to share justly. It will also take courage to say and do these things in a historical moment when saying and doing these things may be more socially ostracizing than they have been in recent American memory. While it will take courage in the moment to say and do these things, it will also take a stamina of sorts, which you might think of as courage over time, right? Doing the same courageous thing over and over again. To say and do the things that are not popular, that are socially ostracizing, or downright, uh, that seem downright weird to people in our communities. The principalities and powers already count on the fact that Christians do not think climate change is an important topic to take seriously. So let us not be known by history as the Christians who did nothing for climate refugees. So uh, I'm going to stop at that point and uh, see if there's any questions or comments or thoughts that I can entertain at this point. Because um, that's all I got. <laughs> but don't feel obliged at all. I can turn off the, the machine and we can all go early. Yeah, so the overwhelming nature of this is what it is. And I think it's important for us to, as I, as I talked about yesterday with Esther, to confront the reality and just say it for what it is. This is big. There's a lot to it, and not one of us is going to be able to solve all of it. But there's a lot of problems in our lives that we only solve little bits and pieces of, and we sort of have to count on other people to do that. And so I think that's something for us to acknowledge first, and then we might have to lament the fact that this is such a big thing. And we don't do really well with lamenting in churches or mourning, like that's not a thing that American Protestants are known for, but we can maybe learn from some other traditions that sometimes it's okay to cry and to mourn and say, this really stinks, and this is really gonna be hard, and then you move on to the next stage, which is hopefully hope, 
and creative action and, and something like that. I think the other thing that um, when Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist who I mentioned yesterday who happens to be a very devout Christian, uh, she reminded us when she came here in uh, February or January, whenever it was, that um, in the U.S., in, a, in a, just a regular family, climate change is talked about on average once a year. So you think about of all the important issues and probably non-important issues that are being talked about at dinner tables and other places in a family, you're only talking about the most pressing challenge that human civilization has ever seen once a year. What are you spending your time doing? And I think this, it's a similar thing that you could start with with this idea of solidarity, which is if you're going to actually say, we need to think about this as a church community, we need to think about this as a family, we need to think about this, then you actually have to talk about it. And she's impressed upon my students that talking about something is to actually accept its reality, right? Not talking about something is either hiding it or just pretending that it has no importance whatsoever. And so as overwhelming as that may be, not talking about it, I think, is even worse than just admitting this is a lot. I don't know what I can do, but perhaps we should be talking about this. Thank you. Any other thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah, let me just kind of close with this, um, what I started with yesterday, which is for centuries, Christians were known as these great problem solvers because lots and lots of very brilliant women and men uh, were Christians. And in my field of science, that was especially important in the 16 and 1700s to the launch of the scientific revolution. And yet, as we, we talked about a little bit yesterday, Christians in America are not known as the problem solvers of our planet these days. I'm not sure there's a lot of people known as problem solvers on our planet anymore, but they're definitely not known to be Christian. And so are we leaving not only a poor legacy to our kids and our grandkids, but we're not handing off the legacy of so many Christians before us that were so important in, as I mentioned yesterday, creating hospitals and orphanages and universities and uh, civil rights uh, era societies and, and forming abolition groups and forming women's rights groups, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that those are ways to remind ourselves. I mean, I, this is the one part of my teaching that's so problematic is that you know, our, our younger students, our millennials and post-millennials don't like history. But if we don't know history, how are we going to know that our Christian sisters and brothers were so influential, not just in the movements of our country, but in movements around the world and are still influential, but not in, in ways that uh, we might even know about because we don't know where we are at. And so I think that's important for us to remember is to, to sort of see God's presence in history is, is an important thing in order to see where God might move us in the future. And on the overwhelming thing, I'll leave you with the second thought of this, which is how overwhelming do you, or how, how overwhelmed do you think the, the disciples must have felt on that Good Friday? Right? They've been following this guy around for three-ish years. And he says, I am going to bring all of this stuff. And they probably misinterpreted some of it. They probably got some of it right. And then he dies, just like everyone else that the Romans had killed. He was dead. And then the women go and find the empty tomb. And then now, you know, all of a sudden the disciples have to decide whether they're going to believe women or not, because women are not trusted in that society. There's a whole kind of issue there. But they go from overwhelmed to the joys of Resurrection Sunday. And I think that's something that we have to think about in our own context is um, we have Good Friday moments in our own personal lives, but maybe this is one of those Good Friday moments 
that we will not see the light of day until we accept the reality for what it was, which is for those first three days, the Christian church did not exist because they thought all had been lost. But we live on this side of the resurrection, so we know there is always hope. There may, it may be painful. It may be slow. We may have to be more patient than we've ever thought. We may have to sacrifice more than we ever thought. But we live on this side of the resurrection. We don't have to wait for God to act. God is acting and asking us to be courageous and act alongside of God. And yet uh, we have far too many American Protestants that uh, don't think that we're living on this side of the resurrection. I think that's another important thing that we can constantly remember. Okay. Well, thank you very much for you all being here.